Wilder was definitely, as I was saying moments ago, was very, very taken with kind of all, all things American, um, especially Roaring Twenties American. Um, and look, he'll, again, we're talking about these later movies that are due. It's not for no reason. It's not It's not without consequence that, that, you know, that he set Some Like It Hot in 28. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Filling in the gaps in film history. In this episode, we talk about three projects pushing the boundaries of our knowledge. Tracking down all the versions of a Charlie Chaplin film. The journalism that would inform one of the greatest Hollywood careers, Billy Wilder's and two more films by the most prominent woman director of Silence, Lois Weber. Keep your knowledge expanding with a big bang. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us too. Thanks. Charlie Chaplin's Shoulder Arms, from 1918, is not one of his most famous films today. But at around 40 minutes and with the subject matter of World War I, it was an important step for him from short films toward both the length and the dramatic maturity of his first directorial feature, The Kid. More to the point, it was a hit in its day, and seen all over the world. But the popularity of Chaplin's work in its day meant that prints and negatives were soon worn to shreds. And the version most widely seen today was assembled from surviving material and scored by Chaplin in the 1960s, and step printed, a crude form of speed adjustment in which every other frame is shown twice. But other versions of the film, closer to the original release, are known to exist. That's why last September the Swiss archive Lichspiel Kinematech Bern launched a project called MASH, Mapping Archival Holdings of Shoulder Arms, intended to identify all the variant versions of the film that survive. I spoke with Brigitte Polowitz, head of film collections at Lichspiel Kinematech Bern, and started by asking how a project on this particular film came about. It came about because Adrian Gerber was researching the First World War films and came across the print for schools and educational print that we had of shoulder arms. And he came to our archive and watched it on a steam back and was, um, was really irritated. <laughs> and so he started a whole research on just this one version. And years later, um, we screened it and told the story around it. And a person in the audience came up to us and said, but you know, I have a nitrate, a 35 nitrate print of this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
and so we made the connection between Adrian and the and the collector and um and yeah and that's how it happened that's how it evolved i would say well so tell me about the different versions of shoulder arms um at least in in outline i know part of the point of the project is to find as many different ones as there are but why are there different versions it is believed that uh, Chaplin used at least four different negatives, um, and they they would be the scenes seem to be pretty much in the same order, but the the um, the framing is a little bit different in most of them. And in Europe, most of them survived in in censored versions only. Okay. Because the Germans were very much opposed to the film, they interfered with the screenings and and made and um, asked distributors to censor the prints. Okay. And when you say Chaplin used different negatives, that's somewhere in the 1960s or 70s when he did the reissue version that's the official version? No, it seemed that he already shot at least, um, that he shot four different ver negatives. Okay. That there were always two different cameras, as it was um, quite usual in, silent, in the silent period that you would have more than one camera. At least for bigger productions, and right. uh, and in that case, uh, apparently it was, or Adrian is trying to prove that it was at least four, um, four negatives existed, okay. the A, B, C, D. <laughs> right, and then the version that that they release now and that we tend to know, I think someone was saying it mostly comes from the C version, or yeah, I think that's what it was. Because Chaplin films tend to get tended to get worn out early on, so they would yes. And this one was a particularly successful film, so it was worn out pretty soon. And there was there also seems to have been some chemical um, decomposition quite early on in the A negative. So um, so they turned to the D and other negatives, the D and the C, I think. Okay. But that would be really more Adrian's um, field. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I know <laughs> the, the point the, of the project the is, to, yeah. is to untangle all of that and figure out what what you have. I think for me, the, the amazing thing is really that there was this educational print in a way. I found that most interesting that they would be able to screen a print for 60 years, that there's an educational um, an educational film company that um, and in Switzerland actually the situation is that every region has their own educational film company or used to have and they have different policies and the one in Bern where we are located had a lot of silent films and they they had a, a, a reel of Lumiere films to, to teach to uh, youngsters what film was about and things like that and the Chaplin film or a couple of Chaplin films actually in there and um, and I find that quite fascinating yeah what what did they consider educational about it just that it was about World War One, <laughs> or was it that it was Chaplin I think it was more a film education film okay. history classes but I don't think this has been researched at all and I find that quite interesting the way the films survive in different versions, also the way they would survive in 9.5 or Super 8. You know, I find that a fascinating story. Yeah. <laughs> so this was just a library print that 
would yeah. go go out, uh, you know, and the whatever kid felt like he could run a projector would <laughs> would run it. <laughs> no, really, it was the teachers. Okay. That would that would use it in classes. Yeah, I don't know. I was always drafted by the teachers to run the projector because I think I, <laughs> I knew more about it than they did. So. <laughs> Well, yeah, I can totally imagine that. <laughs> yeah, so tell yeah. me about uh, getting everybody involved with this project. Very early on, Adrian realized that there was more to be done and there one could, you know, make an example of this one film and and spread it out and get as many people involved as and institutions involved as we as we could and um to convince other people to distrib- to contribute information for it. That's basically how it worked, and it worked out really well, I would say, so far. <laughs> so, yeah, so tell me about the progress so far. So far, we've we got back uh, quite a lot of replies. There were at least four different people, um, different sources getting back to us and, and telling us about other prints that we didn't know about and things like that. But it remains to be seen what kind of versions they are and if there's any difference and things like that. But the details will, you know, it will evolve over the year. But it's fun to see. <laughs> What's the overall plan here? So it's a year of trying to track down these other versions? Yes, and describing them and, and analyzing and, and then seeing, you know, making the case that this one film, we have these negatives and we can probably assume that the way... Chaplin worked on this film would also be the way he was w- would be working on other films. Yeah. So so is the kid next then or something like that? <laughs> Probably not for us because this really started um with the educational version we have. Okay. That was distinctly shown against um Chaplin's will for 60 years I think. <laughs> In Swiss cinemas and schools. Was it just in Switzerland, that version? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So there might be other national variants like that. Yeah. Okay. And what's what's the ultimate goal of all this? It's really just to describe all the the ver- all the prints that exist. There's not it's not some project to put together the ultimate print of of it. No, but it would it would uh, work towards that. Okay. But we wouldn't be doing that. That would be the Chaplin Association, or you know, or the Cineteca di Bologna, or some other projects. But we we're just really we're really just trying to locate and describe what exists. Does it kind of surprise you that this kind of raw material is still out there in the you know that it's it's not all locked down in archives yet? You can just have someone come up and say, "Oh, I've got <laughs> I've got a print of that." I've got yeah. nitrate. Yes, I I'm I'm always surprised at the amount of nitrate that is still somewhere out there in people's attics. I also find it scary. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um but then again, you know, if it's in such a good shape, <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so, but but yes, I do believe it's still it's every time amazing what comes up and uh, what people have at home and what they don't consider is important. And and even though we've been talking about this in public for so long now, 
and people are still like, well, you know, I just thought it's real, it's old. Yeah. <laughs> well, you might not know that something was, you know, particularly valued like that. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think there's archives and there's places that you can go to and they're, they're, they appear in the news relatively frequently, at least in Switzerland. There's, you know, at least once a year there's a story about archive, about films and or audiovisual media and the things you should do and the things you should look out for and then it's always surprising that so many people never hear them <laughs> the stories or yeah so i think that for me that is 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 um is another way of of proving how important it is to keep also these reduction prints and um and to look into them in more detail that have been neglected for so long, you know, that people are always so fixed on the 35 millimeter nitrates of films like this and not on, on other versions and what they tell us about, about the use and the, the access to film history. A link to the page for MASH at the Lichtspiel Kinematek Burn site will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Two and a half years ago, we spoke with Shelley Stamp, professor of film and digital media at the University of California at Santa Cruz about one of the most monumental home video projects ever, Kino Lorber's release Pioneers First Women Filmmakers, six discs of silent films by women directors, for which she was the lead curator. Since then, arguably the most important woman artist featured on the set, Lois Weber, has continued to be the focus of releases. Milestone released The Dumb Girl of Portici and Shoes, both from 1916, and both of which, incidentally, will be in a Weber-focused collection on Criterion Channel this month. And now Kino Lorber has released a set containing two of her later films, 1927's Sensation Seekers and 1923's A Chapter in Her Life, as part of their series of films originally released by, and now restored by, Universal. Shelley Stamp did the commentary track for Sensation Seekers, which stars Billy Dove as a flapper torn between her wild lifestyle and friends and the influence of a ruggedly handsome preacher. I spoke with her about it from Santa Cruz. This is a really interesting film from Weber's career because it comes kind of at the end of her career. It was made in 1927, so it's kind of the end of the silent era, obviously, but also towards the end of Weber's career. Um, and not a lot of films from that period have been released. And so it's a really interesting example of her late work, right? Um, and it's really interesting to me because I think of it as a film that is Weber's attempt to um, make a commentary on flapper culture in 1927, right? And by that point, it's well established, right? And the flapper films are well established and the flapper stars are well established. And I see Sensation Seekers as a way of Weber kind of 
um, leaning into that debate. And and she says in interviews, you know, in earlier in the decade that that she really doesn't think that um, the American girl, as she calls her, is primarily interested in um, uh, partying and drinking. And and she says um, uh, young women have want to do other things, that they're smart and intelligent and independent. And so I, I see Sensation Seekers as a way for her to say, let's look at this flapper character again. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I think of that sometimes when I see things like HBO series Euphoria, where people are doing drugs that I don't even know what the name refers to and attending these parties with like flashing lights and you know everything. And it's just like reality is most people are sitting at home watching this on HBO. You know, the number of people <laughs> who live that life is not not so big but i suppose you know we're always fascinated by the people who seem to be the sensation at the moment sensation hey there's a word for it yep. seem yep. to be that at the moment so right and so you know the central character is a sort of socialite who um you know is living the fast life with her fast set you know the jazz age set and she comes to see that life as really hollow and she wants something more and so that's a kind of central female character that I think Weber's really interested in that a kind of young woman who is, um, wanting something more than just an endless circuit of parties and nice clothes and young men, right? She wants something more and she turns to religion. So this is a film that is sort of quite explicitly about, um, Christianity and how Christianity can help give this young woman a sense of purpose in her life and meaning and everything right yeah no i kind of thought of uh, demille's the godless girl around the same time that kind of trods a little of the same territory and this even has a demillion climax in the you know on on one of the the young male rotters yachts uh when it uh hits another boat and, and everything's sinking and people are you know, the, the crew immediately abandons the owner and his girlfriend to girl guest to, you know, to the water. What do they care? Um, you know, so it's just, uh, you know, we got to We got to go in a big way if, at that point. And it's very well staged, too. Yeah. I mean, it has this kind of spectacular action sequence at the end that goes on and on and on. You know, this this yacht that's sinking and in a huge rainstorm and. Um, yeah, it's kind of a spectacular action sequence that you don't really expect from Weber. You know, I expect a lot of fantastic visual storytelling and a lot of incredibly sophisticated use of cinematography, double exposures, dissolves, mat shots, things like that. But this is a kind of unusual example of a really amazing action sequence. Yeah, uh, can kicking billy dove around pretty hard on the on the boat as it's sinking right um, you know i i want i mean i'm sure that was like a studio tank or something but it's it's pretty ambitious uh all right so she's making this you know break this film that's something of a break with what she'd been up to let's talk about how she got to this film in 1927 back at universal her old studio yes yes so she you know she comes back to universal in well, she comes back to Universal several different times. She comes back to Universal in 1923 and makes a chapter in her life, which is also on this uh, disc set. 
And then she comes back again in 1926 and makes um, The Marriage Clause with Billy Dove and then um, Sensation Seekers, but also with Billy Dove. And it's a, you know, Carl Lemley was her, one of her greatest champions. You know, he, he said um, when she was initially working there in the 19. 19- Tens, he called her his best man on the lot, and then when she, <laughs> and then when she returns in the late twenties, he says, you know, I-, I would trust her with any sum of money. Um, so he has an incredible faith in her at a time when there are fewer and fewer female filmmakers, um, and she comes back and makes a marriage clause and sensation seekers, which really um, launch Billy Dove's career. Um, you know, Billy Dove. Uh, so before she's even before Sensation Seekers is even released, Dove has signed a multi-picture deal with First National, and she's you know uh, on her way right to being a superstar. And and I think we really need to credit Weber's writing and direction. Um, Weber took great pride in her ability to craft sophisticated roles for women and her ability to direct performers. And the reviewers for both of these films really really note in particular the performances and note that Dove wasn't really given much to do before these films except look pretty and wear nice clothes. Right. <laughs> and and she's given material to work with. And so I think that that it's that this moment when Weber returns to Universal is really important for Weber, because um, it gives her this kind of last footing at the studio that's been so important to her. But it's equally important for Dove, I think. Yeah. Right? Um, well, let's talk about where women directors were at that point. I think you know, I probably got this from you the last time we talked about Lois Weber and other women filmmakers was in the early in the teens and early twenties they were important for making the industry a little more respectable and then it kind of came a moment where they're like, "Eh, okay, done we're and we're done with with women directors um so where where did Lo, where did Lois Weber fit in all of that? Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's a that's a great short summary of what happened. Yeah. So in the you know in the mid 1910s, there are an incredible number of female filmmakers in Hollywood, particularly Universal. Right. There's a whole cadre of women called the Universal Women, um, which are making films at at Universal, and and Weber is really that studio's top director uh, in the mid 1910s. I think she's responsible for mentoring a lot of the. Other women who direct, so many of the women that directed at Universal acted under Weber, so you have to imagine she was a mentor. And it wasn't just the Universal women. There was a whole generation of women in the 1910s, really fundamental to the industry. Um, and that shifts in the early 20s. Um, you know, at, by the early 20s, Weber has gone out on her own. She forms an independent production company. That's also very successful. She has a lucrative distribution deal first with Universal and then with Paramount. But by, by 1921, um, the fate of many female filmmakers is very, very different. The It's become much harder for independent production companies to survive in the early 20s. You know, the studios are buying up theater chains and consolidating power and kind of pushing out all the independents. And so a lot of production companies run by women collapse in, in 1921. So Weber's company collapses, Nell Shipman's company collapses, Alice Guy Blaché's company collapses. Um, and, um, Karen Ward-Mahar, the great historian of, of Hollywood business talks about this period of a kind of remasculinization in the industry where, um, 
these sort of powerful studios are borrowing money from Wall Street in order to finance the theater chain acquisition. And, and they're kind of buying into mainstream American corporate culture, which is really male. And so women just get pushed out of a lot of roles. And so Weber's one of those. That happens to her in 21. But she keeps coming back. You know, she uh, she um, her production company collapses. She takes some time off and she comes back to Universal in 23. That's not a particularly successful venture. Takes some more time off, comes back in 26. Um, and but by the time she comes back and is working at Universal in 26, 27, and then she goes on to DeMille Pictures and later in 27, she's one of the very few women directing as she talks about this. She talks about when she goes to DeMille, um, she said the male crew are not used to working with women. And she was kind of stunned by that because she said, you know, 10, 15 years earlier, I was, everything I did was respected. And all of a sudden I've got these crew members who aren't used to working with women and they're a little uncomfortable working with a female director. So she's really one of the last that's kind of holding on in 27, except that's also the year that Dorothy Arzner signs her first contract oh. to direct. And so it's Arzner who kind of goes on to then be the lone woman, of course, right. in the 30s and into the early 40s. So it's a it's a really interesting period of transition. It's kind of the 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 last of that generation. Uh, and Weber's kind of the last to be... be. Yeah, I mean, and then Arzner passes it to Ida Lupino. And then... Right, right. There's only allowed to be one. Right, yeah. Um, um, and then Elaine May, I guess. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, the 70s are a little better. There's a little more a little going bit. on in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and uh, Maya Montagna Smuckler's new book, Liberating Hollywood, is really a great, um, great history of all that was going on in the 70s, kind of behind the scenes. And there is a whole new generation in the 70s that, again, kind of dies off in the 80s. But that's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well, and also, I mean, you have. Arzner is a teacher at that point for people like Francis Coppola and stuff right. like that. So, right. um, so it is kind of the secret history of Hollywood that we're dealing with here. Absolutely. Let's hope it's not secret for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So was Sensation Seeker successful? Was it a hit? It, it was moderately successful. It, the, the films that Weber makes late in her career are not huge hits. And, uh, you know, unlike her films of the 1910s, her top, her films at Universal, you know, in 1916 are just, you know, the box office hits of the year, some of them, like, where are my children, right? Um, so she doesn't achieve that kind of um, success with either the Marriage Clause or Sensation Seekers. Um, the reviews are mixed. They, they really praise her direction of Dove and Dove's acting. Um, they some of them talk about her craft and to recognize her craft, but there is, I think she is at that point a little out of step. Like the, her commentary on the, the flapper moment is, is sort of goes against the grain, right? She's critiquing the flapper and she's proposing not, not only a different model of femininity, but a model of femininity that's rooted in Christianity, right? So it's a kind of old fashioned, um, view right and so she's she it, it's not entirely successful um but i still think there it's a really interesting film and and i actually see it as part of i consider sensation seekers part of a kind of trilogy of films that she makes right late in her career marriage clause the year before 
and then An Angel of Broadway later in 27 with DeMille that are to me all about in various ways Hollywood and stardom and what uh, what stardom and movie culture does to women in particular. So Sensation Seekers isn't about Hollywood, but it's about this kind of socialite who's on a public stage and what happens to that. Um, and the, the main character in Marriage Clause is a uh, stage actress and the main character in An Angel of Broadway is a nightclub stage performer, right? Um, and so there's a way in which all three films I think are about performing and stardom and what that and the commodification of women and female bodies in that culture that I see them as the commentary on Hollywood um, in, in that I think in a way is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, she does achieve a kind of fame. I mean, this was an era mm. when, you know, you, respectable women were in the newspaper twice, you know, when they got married and when they died. <laughs> and she's, you know, emblazoned on the front page. And then there's a party where people take their front page and wear it as a costume. Right. I mean, you could not you could not have your your public scandal and shame more vividly, you know, brought to life by your friends than having them walking around wearing your, your headlines. So. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so the film is really, so it's, it's commenting on kind of Hollywood in this moment, but it's also, you know, revisiting a lot of themes that are familiar from Weber, Weber's films. Gossip and scandal is a film is a, a theme that Weber returns to many, many times over her career. Um, spirituality, uh, something else Weber returns to again and again. So it's sort of, um, it, there's a kind of continuity with themes, um, from earlier in her work, but then also this new interest in, um, in Hollywood and celebrity. Yeah. I was kind of thinking as I was watching it, I mean, it reminds me of the usual knock on D.W. Griffith that his Victorian outlook was big box office in the teens and by the twenties it was out of shape or out of fashion. And it seems like Weber is subject to kind of the same criticism because ultimately this is a, you know, kind of a go lead the proper religious life kind of movie that, uh, you know, might've started Pat Boone in the seventies or something. So, you know, not, not something that was necessarily going to go over in the, in the movies. And also, I mean, not, it's, it's not terribly subtle in the way it's developed. I was thinking of another film. I don't know if you've seen Herbert Brennan's, I think it's dancing mothers. Oh no, uh, I've never seen that. Believe it yeah, or not. It's a Good. film in which, um, Again, both the daughter and the father tend to go out and have a wild old time, and the mother is left at home, and then she just decides that she gets to have a life too. And it's not even that she does anything scandals, but she just has a life, and they kind of don't know what to deal with that. And to me, that has a real reflection on, you know, where women probably found themselves in that time. It's like, you know, hey, what? Why do I have to stay at home? Yeah. So. Um, it was, this does not push it that far because it strongly thinks that you should stay at home. So even though, yeah. you know, Weber of course was a working woman and, and all of that, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I guess I would say, I think that there's, you're right that she is, you know, kind of married off at the end. And that's true of all three of the female protagonists in that trilogy of films I mentioned, right. Marriage clause and angel of Broadway. They're all, they all, find religion in one way or another, and they all get married uh, in the end. Um, but I think, particularly in this case of Sensation Seekers, the emphasis is more on 
spirituality than marriage in, in terms of the way she needs to transform herself. She needs to, to transform herself um, that way rather than through marriage. Although I, I know marriage is, yeah. you know, yeah. right. <laughs> no, the, like you said, the emptiness of, of that life. It's like, yeah. you know, you can party for a while, but at some point if you're still partying, you're kind of missing out on, you know, you're shortening and missing, missing out on life. So, yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, so, so where did Weber's career go after this? This was her last film for Universal? Last film for Universal. And then she um, signs with um, DeMille Pictures. DeMille has his own studio at this point, right? And makes one film there, An Angel of Broadway. I think she had wanted to make more. Um, sound comes in, uh, of course. And she, Weber's quite proactive. She starts taking out ads in the trade paper saying, hi, remember me? I directed sound pictures 15 years ago. Um, and nothing comes of that. Um, so she struggles for several years in, you know, she works as a script doctor. She works, you know, help casting young women. Um, and then she directs her final film, um, in 1933, released in 34, um, which is, the first film um, shot on location on Kwai, on the island of Kwai. It's called White Heat. And she um, shipped over a, a boatload of generators in order to shoot on location on Kwai. So it's, it's incredibly ambitious, right? It's her one and only sound film shot on location on Kwai, where a film had never been shot before. Um, but that's the last film she makes. Um, and then she died. That's in 30, released in 34. She dies in 1939. Um, and... So and and to the end of her life, she continues to try and get work as a director. Um, she comes, she writes to DeMille and asks if he can get her anything, uh, unsuccessfully. So she, um, the the thirty, the late twenties and early thirties, the whole sound era is not a, a sort of successful decade for her in terms of uh, getting work. She tries. She continues to work on scripts. She helps fix other people's scripts. Um, but she she's not successful in getting directing work. And I think it's about, um, you know, what's the fate of female filmmakers in Hollywood in the 30s, um, but also the state of the industry that her particular mode of filmmaking is is kind of out of date at that point. And the industry has forgotten her and forgotten, you know, how successful she was. Um, they have no memory of her. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I feel. There's such a um, such a change in the atmosphere there that in 1934, things that happened five years earlier seem like two generations ago. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of silent directors, in fact, seem to have their last film in 1934. Exactly, you know, yeah. it seems to be a moment where that that happens. Now, what about Billy Dove? She had a career and. She was, I think she was married to Irvin Willett, who was also a, a director of that time. Yes. And she, she goes after, after these two films she makes with Weber, as I said, she signs this multi-picture deal. And then I believe she is one of the top box office stars in 27 and 28. Um, I'd have to look that up to be sure but but she really has a you know she really has a moment there in the late 20s in the sort of late silent era well yeah and then there's the story that Willett sold her contract to howard hughes 
and he was he was sort of blamed for i mean like selling her like literally selling her to howard hughes uh so uh and she's in she's in his film cock of the air which is everything that title suggests uh by all reports so um howard hughes is usual a walking disaster when it comes to other people's careers so really the you know these two films she makes with Weber are are a really important kind of um, highlight of her career. It's a pivotal moment, but also like a real, really proving what she's capable of doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, she's very pretty, and um, isn't she in the Black Black Pirate? Is that the Douglas Fairbanks film she's in? I think I'm not so. Sure, I can't remember to be honest. Uh, let's just let's check our friend Wikipedia. Oh, yes, Black Pirate. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I it's funny watching her. I had trouble not seeing Mary Astor in like uh, medium yeah, or long yeah. shot. She looks a lot like her, but it's in yeah. that era when everyone looked alike because of makeup. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, kind of Sensation Seekers is interesting because it kind of shows you where the movies did not go after that point um, yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah, um, but I'm so happy to have. These, you know, these two films from Weber's late career out for people to see because I think there's been a perception for a long time that when her production company collapsed in 21, um, that, that her career was kind of over. And I think that these two films, Sensation Seekers and a chapter in her life, really show that she, she did continue to work and she continued to work on interesting material. Sensation Seekers is out now from Kino Lorber. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Hedda Hopper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? As day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Kirk Douglas has his greatest role as the reporter who would do anything for a story. Phony, below-the-belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below-the-belt. Right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Flash, exclusive. Here's front-page news. Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau in the Comedy School of the Year. The front page. Do I have to do everything myself? Get the story? Write the story? Listen, sackhead, I could blow a better story out of my, out my nose than you can write. The flavor of Billy Wilder's scripts is so redolent of the kind of worldly cynicism of its time that we associate with fast-talking sharpster journalists that it's no surprise to learn that that's what he was in the years when he was trying to break into the movies. German-language editions of his best journalistic work in Vienna and Berlin in the 1920s have been published there, and now there's an English-language edition, Billy Wilder on Assignment, Dispatches from Weimar Berlin and Interwar Vienna, from Princeton University Press. Noah Eisenberg, chair of the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas at Austin, selected and introduces the work in this volume, translated by Shelley Frisch. I spoke with him from Austin.
I didn't know that Billy Wilder was a journalist, but of course Billy Wilder was a journalist, you know? Yeah. I mean, it just comes through in his films so strongly. Yeah. Uh, was that kind of your feeling about it too? Absolutely. And most people don't know about his past as a journalist. I did because I read, I, I, you know, I, I spent years living in Germany and Austria and I did my, my, uh, you know, my graduate training in, in, in German studies. So I had access, but I didn't think it was right that <laughs> the rest of the world did not, that the English speaking world. And so thankfully, uh, you know, that's when Shelley Frisch came in and, 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 and worked her magic, you know, sprinkles her pixie dust all over the manuscript and turned it into beautiful English. And now we all can read about Wilder as a journalist and see what, what, you know, all that mordant wit that we know from his movies is, is right there on the page as a, you know, as a 19 and 20 something. He starts as a 19 year old and then continues to write for the first, you know, half decade in his 20s. Yeah. All right. Well, then that answers the next question, which is how did you find out about and read all this stuff? So, yeah, there are two collections. And in fact, they're in, in the in the English uh, edition at the end of my e editor's uh, introduction. I list these two sources. The one is a Berlin based. Uh, I think that I think the publishing house no longer exists, but it was a very small publication uh, around 1996-97 called uh, The Prince von Wales geht auf Urlaub The Prince of Wales goes on holiday which is one of the <laughs> right. one of the one of the pieces in the collection and so that had a lot of the Berlin uh, writings of Wilder so after he travels with Paul Whiteman and his orchestra to Berlin in the summer of 26 and ends up just staying in Berlin so you have many of the pieces that he filed uh in, in, in Berlin, in that collection. The other collection, which was simply called Billy, with his you know European spelling, I-E, uh, was a collection of his Viennese writings. And so he started out contributing to these two tabloids in Vienna, um, Die Stunde and Die Bühne, so the, 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 the hour and the stage. And um, even after he relocates to Berlin in, in summer of 26, when he follows Paul Whiteman, he continues to contribute to the Viennese press. So that second anthology includes the, the, the Viennese writings. It's kind of provincial on their yeah. part. The one is the, one is the Berlin, uh, you know, writings, the other is the Vienna, Viennese writing, but there's, there's a longstanding rivalry between those two cities. So maybe it makes, makes some sense. Yeah. And so I take it that he is well known there. Yeah. I mean that you, you, you would think he's certainly well known as a filmmaker and as a writer, uh, you know, screenwriter, director, but he is not known for his journalism, despite the fact that, you know, the, the Germans and Austrians can read in these two separate collections can read his work. These were pretty much under the, under the radar. The, what the, the, the first, the first collection I mentioned, the Prince of Wales goes on holiday. That was, you know, I, I have no idea what the print run was, this little slender paperback. <laughs> and, and the other one is, is a publication that's part of the, uh, Film Archive Austria, the, the Austrian, Austrian Film Archive. And they, you know, it's a limited audience for that, too. Those are people who are big supporters. It's kind of like if you're a big supporter of Film Society of Lincoln Center or some other organization like that, and they produce some of their own. They have sort of an in-house publishing house. So in both cases, really small audience. So not terribly well known for his journalistic writings. Okay. Now, let's talk about his career at that time. So... He just went into journalism for something to do. At, 
Yeah, well, so, so the story goes, he, he, he first thought this might be his, you know, he'd been a, 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 a big fan of all things American that he pretty much inherited from his mother. That's who, who chose to call him Billy, even though he was given the name Samuel in, in, in uh, memory of her, of, her, of her father. So in memory of, of Billy's maternal uh, grandfather. Um, and so he thought that when he just finished his his matura is what it's good the, the, his 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 uh, you know his high school diploma, um, that he would get a, get a job as a journalist and as a foreign correspondent and that would be his ticket to America. That was his first idea behind becoming a journalist is that this would get him to America. He had one minor problem there. He didn't know English, not nothing. Still, ever the persistent one, uh, he basically talked his way into the editorial offices at those two, one of those, two, the two tabloids actually were, 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 were in one, one, one editorial office. Anyway, he talks his way into the office and gets, gets a job as sort of a cub reporter, a stringer, who's, who's doing, you know, crossword puzzles and uh, capsule reviews and things of that sort. And that's how he started out. And th at that point in time too, it was just, it was a way for him to kind of, tap into a, a more exciting world for him. He didn't want, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. He didn't want to study the law. That was just way too straight laced for him. He wanted to be around excitement and he wanted to be around, you know, what was going on in a big city like Vienna and even more so in, in, in Berlin. So whether it was, you know, traveling with a, an American jazz orchestra, whether it was interviewing the all girl, uh, a dance troupe from Manchester, uh, England, the Tiller Girls, or whether it was, you know, going to these different uh, plays that were taking place, you know, when he, he kind of talked his way into Asta Nielsen's dressing room. She was one of the great stars of the silent screen. And and he uh, uh, talks his way into into her into her dressing room. So uh, he, he wanted to be around all those things. He wanted to be around, you know, uh, dance halls and dance clubs, uh, uh, gambling parlors, um, boxing matches, uh, uh, hotel cocktail bars, all these places where he felt that he kind of rubbed shoulders with interesting people. And that, you know, as a journalist, that was kind of his, his ticket. It wasn't initially the ticket to America. Uh, it later became that, but not because necessarily that he was a journalist, but because he'd made that transition from being a journalist to being a screenwriter. And it was as a screenwriter that in 1934, he was lucky enough to get a six month uh, a visa uh, and Columbia Pictures had him come over uh, to start working in Hollywood in, 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 in 1934. But, 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 uh, I mean, you can kind of, I think, trace the, the dots or whatever, connect the dots or trace the lines, um, from his early, early work as a journalist to his work as a screenwriter. And in fact, the collection, Billy Wilder on assignment has a number of places where you can actually see those working kind of in tandem with one another. And there's, there's real kind of overlap between his, his journalistic, you know, his assignments and, and what he's doing as a screenwriter. Yeah, no, I notice. I mean, I'm sure some of this is you picking the things that have subjects that we would recognize now. So you see film related stuff, but he definitely does seem to be kind of haunting the film related world in Berlin in particular, as if he's trying to look for a way into it in a yeah. lot of these stories. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And that's that's exactly what he's doing. That's a, that's a really great observation. I think that he's kind of trying any angle he possibly can, can try to get kind of ingratiate himself, just like he did with, with, with Whiteman. I mean, with Whiteman, he goes and interviews him in Vienna during the, the sort of Vienna leg of, of the tour. And Whiteman likes the, the interview that he does. And then he kind of tra travels with him to Berlin um, and becomes something, you know, 
he's a journalist, but he's really kind of a publicity agent. He's more like Sidney Falco, Tony Curtis's yeah. role in <laughs> success. I mean, he's I think he's and he's definitely like Sidney. He's he's a man on the move, and and without <laughs> and maybe not, maybe his scruples aren't quite as uh, <laughs> optimized as Sydney's, but but he's willing to do what it takes to to kind of find his way into into right. the entertainment industry. And he's a born entertainer. I mean, he's entertaining already when he's when he's you know flitting about his father's uh, uh, you know uh, uh, hotel cafes and and swiping tips from the from the, <laughs> from the tables and. And snookering, uh, uh, you know, people who were there visiting these hotels at, 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 the, at the pool table. I mean, he, he had it in him. It was very, very clear. He had all the makings, I think. Uh, or as his, as, his, as his second wife, Audrey, is the wife to whom he was married for most of his adult life, says, you know, that B- Billy Wilder was, was Billy Wilder before he was even <laughs> Billy Wilder, basically. He was behaving like Billy Wilder before he was Billy Wilder. And you could see that. The real tip-off for me is... Um, there's a section of movie reviews at the end, and most of them are not movies that we know, but one of them is Greed. Yes. And he doesn't give it a particularly good review. No. But when he interviews Von Stroheim and writes about him, he's much kinder to Greed than he had been before as a reviewer. So, you know, he's he's making sure which side his bread is buttered on. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. But with that piece, too, is you, you know, if you're a fan of Sunset Boulevard, uh, you know, you, you may have picked up on the fact that among the things he focuses in on is 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 Stroheim's uh, uh, Queen Kelly and, and Gloria yes. Swanson, her uh, performance in that in that picture. Um, and you can, I think, very easily see then the inspired idea that he then later had, you know, several decades later to pair them in, in, in Sunset Boulevard and not only to pair them, but in the scene with William Holden, when Gloria Swanson, and William Holden, are are sort of it's sort of home movies with the glory, you know, with Norma Desmond. What is she showing him there? She's showing Queen Kelly, right. and, and Paramount, you know, paid the I think it was a thousand dollars, or at least that's what that's the story Billy tells, <laughs> uh, to to get the rights for for Queen Kelly. So I mean, you can see these little these little pieces, these these sort of flickers of of what's to come. Um, yeah, and I also noticed, I mean, just in his writing, even in kind of the most trivial pieces, I mean, there's a number of pieces early on that are typical kind of columnist stuff where you just look around yourself and what do you notice? You start writing about that. You right. know, you're vamping a little bit. Sure. You know, one of them is about uh, coffee houses. A coffee yep. house he loves is being renovated. Right, exactly. And, he, and he's talking about all the memories that are being, you know, scrubbed off the walls in this yep. coffee house. Yep. And I'm sure with everybody smoking, that you know, that that's a, sure. a literal thing that you're scrubbing them off. Yeah, yeah, no But doubt. I mean, the way he describes it is very, you know, it's it's like a, a screenwriter seeing these stories in the walls, you know, of loves past and broken up and other things that happened in this coffee house. Um, there's another bit that I really like. It's just, it's a little piece on uh, the use of the word, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, 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 anything but objectivity is the name of the piece. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. He says, its function is to coyly introduce hitches into the smooth course of things and to kill off the hope created by the words I would love to with candied poison. <laughs> and it's like, that's just good screenwriting there. It's like, yeah. he's going to, you know, he's going to reel you in and then he's going to say, but 
Yeah, yeah. You no, know, I, absolutely right. It's great screenwriting that's, you know, sort of in its embryonic stage. And it's also, I tell you, really, really great translation on the part of Shelley Frisch, who rendered, uh, you know, Wilder's original German prose in such wonderfully animated and kind of colorful uh, in English. Um, but you're absolutely right. And you can see that in, in, in that piece. Also, I really love one of the pieces that but critics have been kind of picking up on. Uh, and I have to I have to agree with them is the art of little ruses in which he kind of advocates for for lying being made a part of the high school curriculum. That right. Really, you know, that would be practical lessons. You should you should learn how to lie and lie better. Um, <laughs> which is, yeah. I also think there's something very wild, wild Darian, so to speak, about 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 that, um, who was, you know, really a uh, wonderful storyteller and was not at all concerned with embroidering things here and there, if that would make for a better tale. And so, and then embroider he did. <laughs> There's another one. I thought, here's just a character. Uh, it's called Interview with a Witch. Oh, yeah. And it, it literally is what he says. And, and she's telling, you know, how her business works. Mostly death and destruction, she said with a friendly smile. Loss of assets, loss of face, and a bit of damage. For one person, I wish for something to defraud a business. For another, I wish for a minor but annoying skin disease. The wishes, especially those of my female clients, get quite elaborate. Loss of a piece of jewelry, hair loss, rapid weight gain. Think of that as my bread and butter work. I mean, just, the, you know, that sort of matter-of-fact, practical, it it sounds very American, you know. For 25 yeah. cents, you can get this kind of <laughs> of curse, but for 50 cents. Yeah, absolutely. And apropos of America, I'm also a big fan of the piece in which he talks about, you know, the the guy in New York City who's who's hired simply to smile. You need to be able yeah. to, if, if you can smile all day, it's for the, what is it, a marmalade factory, I think it is. Yeah. And basically, his sole role, he's hired simply to, to, to smile. And I think that, look, these are, Wilder was definitely, as I was saying moments ago, was very, very taken with kind of all, all things American, um, especially Roaring Twenties American. Um, and look, he'll, again, we're talking about these later movies that are new. It's not without, it's not for no reason. It's not, it's <laughs> not without consequence that, that, you know, that he sets some like it hot in 28 and, and he sets it Chicago, but look, Berlin was known as Mark Twain once dubbed it Chicago on the spray. And so all of that, he's, he's very, very alert to these things that, you know, the flashiness of America, um, as you're describing, you know, the capitalism of, of America, even if it's being then tr sort of trans translated to, 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 to Berlin, um, you, you you really get a sense that this is this is somebody who was destined to make his way across the Atlantic, um, and and he certainly aspired to that. And look, it's 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 really good fortune that that he did. People say I was just reading this interview with um, Wilder and and Paul Diamond. This is is Diamond's son, I A L Diamond's son. Right. Uh, that's you know Wilder's collaborator some three decades, who uh, you know they they they. They wrote the script of, of, of Some Like It Hot, of uh, Seven Year Itch, of Buddy Buddy, of all these movies. Um, and and uh, he, he says, uh, 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 Paul Diamond says, Wilder was was really, you know, he was kind of American. He was American before, you know, before. And, and, and what, what, what's so lucky, he attributes to him, he says he has this sort of also this kind of a acuity of mind, an ability to decide. There were a lot of Germans and Austrians who after the rise of Hitler thought, you know what, the storm will pass. I'm going to stick, stick around. And Wilder was, he was so eager 
to get to America that, you know, he, he, he sort of hightailed it uh, to, to, to Paris soon after Hitler, uh, you know, rose to power and soon after, right after the, the Reichstag burning. So, so Wilder, I think that, 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 that desire already as a 19 year old, when he thinks that maybe he can get a job as a foreign correspondent, even if he doesn't have any English language skills, yeah. um, he was determined it was going to take a handful of years, maybe, uh, not, not not even quite a decade before he was going to make his way across the Atlantic. And he has all the makings of that snappy, you know, sort of that snappy style, snappy prose style of, of a screenwriter. And at that time, we, we shouldn't forget, so many of the writers who were making their way to Hollywood had come from journalism. Yeah. Um, you know, the Ben Hechts, for example, if you just to take to take to take one example and a good example, because, you know, it was later that Wilder would then adapt the the Hecht uh, MacArthur collaboration on, you know, front, front page. That's sure. you know, the sure. Walter Matthau, uh, uh, Jack Lemmon, one of the many, many, many films in, the, in which they would play opposite one another. No, he he definitely has you know that kind of fast modern operator feel to him, and and you really see that in the you know so many people emigrated to Hollywood, but the ones who really kind of made it, you know, have that mentality already. They can just fit right in, you know. Murnau and Pabst have trouble, but give Fritz Lang a crime screenplay, and he's ready to go to the races. Absolutely, and Lang, you know, and Wilder's kind of in the same vein. Yeah, yeah, even more versatile than Lang, but yes, yes, but but but, but equally adept at, at you know sort of the whole uh, uh, commercial enterprise of American filmmaking, um, and and I think even to, 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 in that in that regard, Wilder's is savvier uh, still than than than, than Lang, um, but they both managed to to to, to succeed. Is you you're absolutely correct. And there were those, you know, I spent uh, more than a decade writing this this biography of one of Wilder's earlier collaborate, collaborators on People on Sunday, uh, Edgar G. Ulmer. And he's somebody who just, uh, well, as as as, as uh, Douglas Sirk said in, in, in that collection of interviews, Sirk on Sirk, he says, you know, w- once you've been basically marked as a B-movie director, you, you, you just can't get out of that. That's right. you're, you're, you're kind of confined to that for the rest of your life. Um, and, and that was the fate to a large degree of, of Edgar Omer and with Wilder, I mean, as you say, I mean, he was just sort of flitting about and he would, you know, go from one, one, one first started out, you know, writing and he, and, and always with an, uh, uh, an American born or in the case of his diamond, uh, American raised co-writer. So he could kind of make sure that his, his, his language was, 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 uh, serviceable, um, but he would move so freely among all these different different uh, genres and 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 different studios for that matter. Work independently, work with the big studios, um, and that was pretty extraordinary. It's funny in that scene. I was just thinking about this interview again with Paul Diamond, with uh, his Diamond son, and 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 he, he Wilder reaches a point where he says, you know, the the, the, the same person who wrote Double Indemnity also wrote. Some like it hot. He says he, he's kind of commenting on himself, not not in any sort of uh, arrogant way, but he says, you know, most people think, oh no, that must have been his cousin or his brother. That couldn't have been his <laughs> personally, right? You know, both of, and 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 it, it is true. I mean, he just the the range is extraordinary, um, really extraordinary. And and again, and and the success. Look, whether it's the six Oscars that he racked up, and then on top of it, the, the Irving Thalberg Award, or whether it's just the, the, the his ability to speak to a popular audience. And that's, look, by the way, that's so unlike Lang, who was championed by the, you know, the French New Wave, then the critics around Cachier de Cinema, 
you know, Wilder was thought as being much more of a sort of, uh, not necessarily a company man, but they just thought of him as more of a commercial director, somebody right. who didn't maybe have that signature style. I totally disagree. And in fact, even Andrew Saris, who is, you know, one of the great proponents, as we know, of the auteur theory, uh, he, he kind of recanted on his position regarding Wilder as well. Yeah, he promoted Wilder from less than meets the eye at some yeah, later yeah. date, didn't he? Was, yeah, he was relegated to the le- less than meets the eye. Look, uh, Omer was an expressive esoterica, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so <laughs> I tell you, less than meets the eye is a big bump over right. <laughs> expressive esoterica. I think it was Omer and Val 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 Luton and 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 uh, I I can't remember who else is in there. Yeah, Albert Luton um, or somebody. Yeah. But but yes no he did he did finally uh, late in life there's a in in um, you ain't heard nothing, nothing yet, yet that collection yeah, yeah there's a a piece in which I think it appeared if I'm not mistaken in film comment but where he really kind of recants his earlier uh, mis misestimation I guess or, or uh, misreading if you prefer of, of Wilder yeah yeah um, I thought it's interesting too I mean he talks about the making of his first film uh, People on Sunday. You know, he segues neatly from writing about other people making movies to himself. Yes. And of course, you know, that has, you know, it's one of those movies where like everybody goes on to something. I mean, it's Wilder, Robert Siadmak, Edgar Almer, Fred Zinnemann, you know, yes. they're, they all wind up in Hollywood. And Kurt Siadmak too, Robert's, Robert's brother, who was, right. a, who was a great, great, great writer. Yeah. Uh, wrote wrote for the Universal Horror Cycle. Sure. Um, yeah, and 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 this is sorry if I don't mean to I don't mean to cut you off here, Mike. But this is really when Wilder becomes more of the sort of Sidney Falco press agent. You know, he's doing like he's right. doing work as a press agent for the, the the film the film that he's involved with. So it's it's really pretty kind of shameless and and wonderful all the same. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's like George Bernard Shaw reviewing his own plays. As I guess he did a few times. Um. Yeah, so I mean his his career, you know, you see him, you know, you see what makes Billy run all through this this yeah. book. Um it starts with a piece that I think is kind of, you know, the facts of it are kind of legendary in the in the Wilder legend, the one about him being a taxi dancer, a yeah, yeah. dancer for hire, which you know, I had read things that you know, you could see in Sunset Boulevard, you know, the shame he felt at having had to do that for a living. Then I'm reading the piece. I mean, he does it basically for a story, but it sounds like maybe he stuck with it because the money was better than journalism. Is that yeah, what was said, happening? I, I, he said in an interview lately, I said, I didn't have the best dance moves, but I had the best dialogue. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> there you go. Says, which is such a wilder line. Um, I mean, I think there is a real, uh, um, at least a muted affinity between William Holden's performance as Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard and Wilder's performance as Wilder, as, 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 as Billy with an IE in that, you know, that taxi dancer piece, uh, uh, dear, dear waiter, a dancer, please. Um, and again, in terms of that willingness to sort of embroider a story in a way that's going to make for a better, have a better punchline, um, you know, he, he he claimed during this period, and it's unclear. He leaves that leaves that willfully vague that it wasn't just dancing with this woman, but that essentially that he was something of a gigolo. And you can see that in Holden's Joe Gillis as well. Right. Uh, even though yeah, I think the the anguish that you describe in in uh, Joe Gillis and William Holden's character, you don't feel that so much. I mean, Billy uh, is so happy in that piece to be basically to have food on the table and to have all those wonderful, those wonderful 
products that he's putting, you know, the pomade for his hair and, <laughs> and you know, and, and, and the nice suit. You know, he's so embarrassed about his the, the, the shirt that he's wearing when he first goes and meets this Roberts character from the story who, who ends up giving him the, you know, giving him the gig. But, you know, he's like he's folding his shirt so you don't see that it's that it's been you know tattered and or, or maybe even discolored. And and so I, I don't think there's as much of a of a sense of of moral compromise in 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 Wilder the young Billy writing that story as there is you know we see on screen and William Holden performing Joe Gillis in Sunset Boulevard yeah you dial it up for the movies of course for sure and yeah absolutely uh and 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 that 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 sort of sense of shame I don't I <laughs> there, there is no shame right uh, the young I'm not sure there's much shame in the older Billy but the younger Billy there's definitely is not whereas you can you can you get that sense in in Holden's performance uh in Sunset Boulevard, that there is a degree of, of, of shame of recognizing what he's done uh, and sort of, you know, that he's a, a, attached himself to, to, to Norma and all that she represents yeah. uh, as his meal ticket and that he's willing to do whatever it takes to hold on to that to that meal ticket. Um, I think that Billy in, in the, the taxi dancer piece is, is moving is much more. It's, it's much more. The, the piece itself is much more playful. And he's moving much more kind of freely in that world. He's not in the, you know, in the in the kind of the the, the claws of Norma Desmond, which is where Joe Joe Gillis really finds himself. Yeah, I think yeah, that, it's that, not just one woman no, who's, no, who's no, no. keeping him. So no, yeah, no, and that's precisely his role. I mean, he's a, he's a kept man, and and that's the shame I think uh, that he feels, especially in the face of, of Betty Schaefer. Uh, when he kind of needs to come clean on it in that in that in that somewhat wrenching scene, right? Yeah. So, is there anyone else besides Stroheim in the book that he wound up working with years later or cross paths with again? Well, uh, so there's there's a profile of, of the of the of the French dramatist uh, Claude Anet, and 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 his play. Ariane, uh, la jeune fille russe, the uh, Ariane, the, the Russian girl, is what he then adapts to, to, to love in the afternoon. Oh, okay. So you can see that, you know, again, in terms of holding on to these foundational figures and sources and plays, texts, etc., they're in his toolkit for good. I mean, he's, he, you know, when he, when, he, when he crosses the pond and, 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 and arrives in, in the you know the dream factories there in Southern California, he still has with him these these you know the the, the, the toolbox the toolbox that he brings with him and in, right. and in that toolbox are a lot of of European sources. So there's you know there's the piece also it's very very short. I, I happen to like it a lot, but it's you know all of a paragraph that that that, that sort of imagined casting for Lubitsch. And, you know, yes. Lubitsch would, yeah, and Lubitsch would remain a, a very important mentor for his for him. And you know that famous sign that hung in his Beverly Hills. Office. What would Lubitsch do? Uh, I think he looked at that sign every day. And among his early writing assignments, um, when he was still collaborating with, with, uh, in fact, it was early on in the collaboration with with Charlie Brackett, with Charles Brackett, uh, yet Bluebeard's eighth wife, as well as Ninochka, um, with Walter Reich too. So Walter Reich is another Viennese writer, and and Billy. And Walter Reich, they developed their collaboration during those years in Berlin when he's you know, simultaneously working as a journalist and beginning to kind of cut his teeth uh, as, a, as a screenwriter in the late in the late Weimar years. Um, Ein Blonder Traum, a, a, a blonde, blonde dream with, with, with Lillian Harvey, 
is is one of the films that 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 he and I think I can't remember there may be a handful of writers on that assignment as you know as was also frequently the case in in Hollywood, but he and 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 and, and Walter Reich, uh, they 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 collaborate on that picture and then and then in in, in Hollywood years later and Ninochka among other among other films. So when does he leave journalism and just be in movies? That's a very good question. It's funny. I was I was on the phone or Zoom or whatever we're doing these days <laughs> uh, the the other day uh, with an Italian journalist, and she's doing a piece on on the early journalistic writings of Wilder. And so we were talking, and she asked um, Mike. She asked that exact same question, and I stumbled a bit uh, because I first said, "Oh, well, you can see." By the by, the late twenties and early thirties, he's really moved on to 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 working as a screenwriter. But that's not true. In fact, in the in the collection, you can see that he's doing them both simultaneously. Right. And so, when just sort of thinking it through with her, um, it occurred to me, you know, I I have to. It's pure conjecture on my part, but if he hadn't been forced to flee, you know, due due to to to, to Hitler and, and his henchmen. Uh, I don't know whether Wilder, you know, he might have continued working as a journalist and screenwriter. We just don't know. The point being that once he had to flee Germany and with it leave behind his mother tongue, his ability to write journalism was just overnight was gone. So he couldn't his French was not good enough to write to write journalism while he was in Paris for that one year. But he did continue to work as a screenwriter and he co he co-directed uh, Mouvez Grain, the, the, this, right. this 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 uh, uh, crime crime movie. Um but in in the U.S. too, I mean, he arrives with very very uh, limited uh, facility with English, like really severely <laughs> limited. And so the story goes, you know, he ends up listening to the radio incessantly. You mentioned Fritz Lang moments ago. Fritz Lang used to love to to read the the comics. He'd read the comics and he'd love to read, you know, sort of tabloid newspapers. I don't think that Billy Wilder had what it took to even read the, you know, comics. <laughs> so what he did is he just he would just always have the radio on, and in particular, he loved sports announcers. So he would listen to baseball <laughs> games, and that's it's 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 you know, it's a great story, but it makes also a lot of sense if you think about that, that again that kind of snappy dialogue and and also just sort of the tempo of of of, of some of his of American screenplays again co-written. Co with a native-born uh, writer, in the case of Charles Brackett, who was a New Yorker, born, you know, born to a New York State senator who had been educated at Williams College, and who was a member of the Algonquin uh, Roundtable, and it was a New Yorker drama critic and all that. So Brackett was a very, very different collaborator for him than was Is Diamond, who, like Wilder, was, you know, an immigrant came from a Romanian family. He came as a young boy, so his English was great, but was much more, I think, um, they, 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 their sense of humor was 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 really kind of uh, similar, and uh, you know they were really kind of an old an old married couple as they used right. to refer to themselves uh, <laughs> over those three decades of collaboration with Brackett. I don't think it was always the most harmonious, but they the the results were 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 wonderful. Um, and, well, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, sports sports announcers make so much sense because they're very emphatic. Exactly. You know, I, 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 a chef uh, tell me that he learned Spanish. 
by watching Mexican soap operas, telenovelas, mm -hmm. because everything is delivered in a big way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you, it's slow enough to follow it, and there's no doubt what they mean when they say it. So, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. it's kind of in the same vein. But, yeah, yeah you also pick up a vernacular in particular from that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the telenovela, that, that, that is a really, really good analogy. I mean, it's just, it's so exaggerated. It's so overblown. You really can't, you're not going to, it's not long on subtlety. So you're not going <laughs> to miss much, even if you don't quite fully grasp the language. But before you know it, you, if you watch enough telenovelas, you're going to start to get the language too. Same is true of this, you know, you probably don't know what a, you know, full count means. Right. Uh, if you watch enough, or excuse me, listen to enough baseball being reported on the radio, eventually you'll know what the stakes are of a full count. Um, and, and you so get forth. a rich array of metaphors for other things in life. Yeah. Absolutely. And he uses funny there in a number of the interviews, you will find these sports metaphors. And I suspect they probably come from back then, but he was also, he was a lifelong, uh, a sports fan. And he especially really, really loved baseball, became a big Dodgers fan. Uh, yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I think, it, and, and it, I think he likes sports of sports of all, all kinds. It's funny in that same interview that I keep returning to with, uh, uh, cause I just read it recently, uh, with Paul Diamond, he talks about a scene in people on Sunday that the, I don't think was ever shot. And I don't know whether this was just miss him misremembering or, or imagining, I'm not sure, but where there was supposed to be a tennis match. And he was a fan of tennis as well. It's supposed to be a tennis match. And it's when there's this, you know, the romantic sort of tryst that happens um, between uh, uh, Wolfgang and um, Brigitte when they sort of disappear in the forest. And apparently there was going to be intercut this, 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 this tennis match, but you wouldn't see the tennis players. You would just see the reaction of the audience. So they'd be sort of watching the volley. And that was <laughs> supposed to indicate, you know, this is again, this is sort of, his attempt at a, a, a little bit of Lubitsch subtlety, I guess, that that yeah. was to indicate that they were ha having a, uh, uh, yeah, a moment. <laughs> so this Wilder kid, Sorry, he, yeah. he should, uh, you know, good luck with him on his career in Hollywood at this point. Uh, writing was, uh, was a good preparation for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's only when he realized that, you know what, he couldn't, couldn't bear to 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 kind of countenance the 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 butchering of his scripts by other directors. <laughs> then he realized, you know what? You know, sort of in the spirit of creative control, I better I better direct these 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 films myself. Uh, and so you know, he gets a break and, and does the the major and the minor with Ginger Rogers, um, and then Five Graves to Cairo, where we see good old Eric von Stroheim. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, before you know it, he's established as a very successful writer director. And that's really what he, you know, would ultimately, you know, would do for the succeeding many decades, uh, four, four, four decades. Well, yeah. So, and the secret of being famous as a writer is to be famous as a director too. Sure. So. Well, there's so many great writers as we know. I mean, that's the, the sort of, uh, oh God, that's, that is a very tortured, <laughs> history I mean, actually and in fact in, in sunset boulevard i mean joe gillis is a kind of case in point he, he, he can serve for us as exhibit a exhibit b might be you know in altman's the player where you know your screen your average uh, hollywood screenwriter <laughs> finds himself face down in a puddle right. you know, <laughs> uh, outside the rialto movie theater um dead i mean and, and joe gillis his fate isn't much better in that swimming pool but but the point is is that a lot of writers are are forgotten um 
and 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 are never really given proper credit. Whereas if you write and you direct, chances are you really you know you, you might actually be be recognized, um, and you've you've certainly enhanced those chances immeasurably. The man at the top of the ladder is Billy Wilder. He specializes in screen comedy. Remember how he made you howl at Some Like It Hot? Remember how he delighted you in The Apartment? Well, now Billy Wilder's done it again in his hilarious new comedy, One, Two, Three. Billy Wilder on Assignment, Dispatches from Weimar Berlin and Interwar Vienna, is available now from Princeton University Press. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Brigitte Polowitz, Shelley Stamp, and Noah Eisenberg, and to Serge Bromberg and Jody Price at Princeton University Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. I love this podcast. It's a must for classic film fans. With one foot in academia and the other on the mainstream, it's inviting and deep at the same time. That's what JC from MGA said about Nitrateville Radio in his five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Why don't you leave one, and I'll highlight it, too. Thanks for your support, and we'll be back with another one in a few weeks. Send Ingeborg in here with pad and pencil. Yes, sir.